Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Pastors Podcast, You Asked. We're here with Pastor Chris, Pastor Eddie, and Drew McKay, our Director of Student Ministries, and I'm your host, Pastor Justin. Today we'll be discussing Pastor Chris's sermon from last Sunday about sex, marriage, and singleness. Pastor Chris, you were preaching. Can you catch us up to speed just a little bit on some of the things you said before we dive into the questions? Yeah, we, uh, we, we are in First Corinthians 7, uh, verses 1 through 16. Um, we dealt with three topics there that Paul dealt with. Uh, the first one was marriage and sexuality. Um, we argued that, um, that sex, sex is designed obviously to be within marriage of husband and wife, but also that sex was for more than just procreation purposes. The argument Paul makes is that it's, it's good um, within the marriage context, even for pleasures, and we talked about that. Um, we dealt with, uh, with we talked about marriage and singleness as well, um, dealing with uh, widows and widowers as well as singles. Paul's going to advocate a lot more about singles later on in chapter seven, so we t- touched on that briefly. And then also we uh, dealt with um, marriage and separation, or marriage and divorce, um, in terms of uh, what are the context for that. Um, I think that the important thing on these, like the questions we'll get to and things, is to understand first of all that the we believe in. Um, uh, the analogy of scripture. I mean, there's, there's, we have to go to other passages to help. This is not a theological treatise on the entire subject of marriage and divorce and sexuality, right? There's, uh, Paul's not. He's answering specific questions, and so, um, so as we come up with, we have to go to other passages to help fill in some of the gaps too. So, so we're I'm glad for the questions. It's good. And as you can imagine on this topic, we had a lot of questions come in. So today will be more of a mailbox edition where we just kind of rattle through several questions. So Pastor Chris, the first question that we will answer that was texted in during the sermon is this. I've heard um, people have a view that sex is only for making babies. It's often said, um, we're talking about biblical views of birth control. What biblical evidence do people have for this view that sex is only for making babies? Well, I, th- I think you start with Genesis account is where they're going to go, right? So when Jesus, when God created, you know, Adam and Eve, He said, "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth." Right. So the the command, as it were, was there to um, not just to rule over the earth, but also to procreate, to have children. And so we obviously see they obeyed that; they had children, and so on and so forth throughout the Old Testament and New in the New. So I think that's where they're going to go for evidence for that view. Um, the, the, interesting enough, I think that's part of what chapter 7, verse 1, Paul is addressing. Because they said in chapter 7, verse 1, they had a, a statement, they had a question, and they wanted, it was more of a, a question of wanting Paul to affirm, hey, we're right on this, correct? And it's this, it, the, the ESV says it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. And you, you take the translation of that, you take the language, in essence what their question is, they're asking Paul, hey Paul, it's good, um, right? To not have uh, to not have sex for pleasure with your spouse, and it, it may sound a little strange to, ask, to, to to frame it that way, but that's really the question they were asking. Partly because it's the culture they lived in. Uh, they lived in a, a Greco-Roman culture where sexual pleasure was valid, but interestingly enough, it was valid only. It was only used outside of the marriage. So a man you viewed his wife as primarily like property and that she was only there, sex was only within marriage to have children, right, was kind of the argument, and that pleasure was to be taken up, taken outside of that, the brothels, the prostitutes, the multiple mistresses, like that was a common Greco-Roman male life. Um, Paul's advocating, saying, no, that's not the way we as Christians behave, that's not how we live, that's not how our marriages are about, that's not what sex is about. 
and it says he's basically ar arguing like, yes, it is for procreation. He's, he doesn't even bring that up, by the way, because it's pretty obvious. Then go back to Genesis. It is pretty obvious that the Bible says sex is for procreation, but that's not exclusive of what, it, what it's for. So he goes into describe here. He goes on to talk about each man should have his his own wife, and each wife should have her own husband. And the word to have their own is the word to have regular sexual relations with. Um, outside of the means or purpose of procreation. The pleasure is the point he's making. It should be within. Yeah, I think Song of Solomon also speaks, there's a lot of language about sex that is for pleasure. It's not a either or, it's, it's a both and. Yeah, I mean, and just be, I mean, it's in Proverbs 5, but I mean, even the, the father advocating to his son, is, you know, he tells him when he gets married to, you know, let her breath satisfy you always, right? I mean, that, it's in there. It's Proverbs 5, and it's like, He's advocating for, hey, son, pleasure should be, and sex should be found with it, with your wife, not outside of that. And so I think there's lots of biblical mandate for that, but this is what Paul dealt with there in chapter 7. Yeah, that's good. Second question we'll address here is, is this, is divorce okay in the case of abuse or if a spouse is committing adultery? And then also, is there a situation where it's okay to remarry after a divorce? Several questions there, but divorce, is it okay in the case of abuse, number one? Is it okay in the case of adultery, number two? And then number three, um, is there a situation where remarriage after a divorce is permissible? I, I think the first thing to be said about divorce is, is to say, look, that's not the design of marriage. Marriage isn't created by God with, with the idea of divorce. Now, again, in First Corinthians, the culture, the the world, Divorce was rampant. It was worse than it is in America today. I mean, um, there are evident, there's some written evidence of people being married up to 20 times, uh, remarried. Um, and so, um, so I would say, first of all, that that's not the, the very first step we're taking. Okay, it's not the first thought when someone gets married. There's no prenuptials. No, or no, we're not having like dividing out our properties in case we in case we do or if we do or when we do get divorced. Uh, the Bible would advocate that, you know, what Jesus, God would say from the very beginning there, and he would repeat it in the Gospels, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And that includes the spouses in that marriage. So I think that's our first thought before we jump into, like, all the legalities of, like, we kind of get divorced. It's like, we don't want that on the table. But there are situations, because of the fallenness of man, because of sin, because of brokenness, there are some exceptions. Um, the one we dealt with in First Corinthians 7 was an exception that if there's an unbelieving spouse who chooses to leave, the idea of the language is separation, it's the word divorce that we would use. Um, and so it was it was a situation where they basically, you know, were allowed to leave. Paul says, let them leave. Um, you know, you're not bound anymore was the idea. So, so that's an exception. Um, the other one, Romans 7, talks about where, uh, Romans 7 verse 2, where there's a death of a spouse. Obviously there's, there's, a divorce there, there is a, a, in, a, in a sense of separation, right? There's separation there from, from because of death. And the third exception would be what was brought up in that question is Matthew 19, uh, where Jesus speaks of, um, of sexual morality being an um, exception to, to marriage. Um, if, if there is sexual morality, there is a permitted um, option for divorce. But again, that doesn't mean that is the immediate response. For two Christians, we should seek to even reconcile, repent, forgive, and try to work through that. But there is exceptions for that. So then how does somebody proceed? They find themselves in an abusive marriage. 
how should they proceed in light of that? Well, abuse, now that's a different subject. Um, yeah, we're talking about if it's adultery, um, I think in any case, if we have adultery taking place within the marriage to Christians, first thing to do is, hey, let's, let's seek counseling. Let's come see a pastor, see a counselor. Let's, let's seek reconciliation. That's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7 even, um, that if there is even like a separation or a divorce, that the, the goal is still restoration um, of that relationship. And so let us try to help in that situation. Uh, that's very hard. We will walk with you through that. Um, when it comes to abuse now, the Bible doesn't directly address that. It doesn't directly address um, abuse as, um, as a reason for divorce. Now, having said that, I'd also say there's plenty of other biblical principles that deal with um, just the, even the image of God and man. Um, but I think even if there is a situation where someone is being abused, a spouse is being abused or their kids are being abused, um, I think there is valid, valid means to get out of that situation, have some separation, move resi- you know, from a residential standpoint. If it's um, happening within the home, like finding some separation there. Um, again, seek much counsel in that. Let's walk through that as, pa- as pastors will help you. Maybe even situations where there has to be a restraining order filed if necessary, if they are completely out of control. Um, there are legal means to, to pursue. I think Romans 13 would give us reasons for that. Um, you know, and so I think, think there's means of going about that. Um, and the goal is to, is to sit down with that person, call them to repentance, um, because obviously that is that is sin to to physically abuse somebody, um, and go and go from there. Now, the the way the church would do, if it's two people in the church, um, there would be a, a call to repentance for the one spouse who's being abusive. Um, we would follow the steps of church discipline, right? In Matthew 18. We would get to the point where it's step four. If the whole church pursues that person, they refuse to repent. They just believe, like, you know what, my spouse is a punchy bag, and that's just the way it is. Um, then then they, they, begin, they get removed from the church. They are to be considered now an unbeliever. In that situation, um, I would then say that, that still, if that person who has been removed, um, if that unbelieving spouse there still says, I still want to be married, I don't think there's a biblical validation for the believing spouse to file divorce. I guess what we deal with the first Corinthians seven. You would think, logically think, that person probably like, I'm done, I'm out of here. Um, and there may be issues of abandonment, meaning they, they, they permanently leave and they don't come back. Um, then there, there is part of reason for that at that point because they've, they've left the marriage. They're no longer there. So, thoughts? You guys? Yeah, I think the key there is this whole idea of this is happening within the context of the church. And so when any type of issue is coming into the marriage, that you should seek help, you should seek counsel from people within the church, especially when it comes to the issue of physical or verbal abuse or emotional abuse, of reaching out to somebody to seek help and counsel to, especially if the other spouse who is doing the abusing is a professing Christian, there's a... There's a lot of, like you said, other biblical principles that need to be acted on. Um, but I think I liked how you clarified the use of the word separation in 1 Corinthians 7 is implying the separation of divorce, not removing yourself from the situation. That's kind of how we think of separation today. If you're in an abusive situation, get out of it. You know, like go stay with somebody else. Go seek somebody in the church who can give you refuge. 
you don't just hang in there and continue being abused. You need to get yourself out of that situation and seek help, especially if there's others involved too, like kids. And one of the really tragic realities in the church in America today is that there are these situations, first off, happening, and that church leaders refuse to take action. So if, if you're a, a spouse that is being abused and you go to your church leaders and they cowardly respond with inaction and they don't do anything, you're, what's the response there where you're feeling trapped? I've tried to go through the right channels and nothing's happening. How should someone proceed in a situation like that one? Well, in that situation, I would I would rarely advocate for you know church hopping here. That's not something I think is, is normal. But if you if you have a pastoral team that doesn't care enough about you to actually intervene for you and to work with you on this one, then I would say that that's not good shepherding, and that's a dangerous place for you to be as a believer. I'd be in a situation where I have a church where there's pastors who will engage on that. Um, that'd be that'd be my, my counsel now because you are you're kind of at an end. Like, well, the church should be should be working on this. Like, we should be. Practicing church discipline, we should be working through this issue. And if they're just doing nothing about it, I would say that you know you're, you're in an unhealthy church at that point because they're not dealing with sin; they're not dealing with it. Um, and I would advocate to find a place that does. That would be, I mean, that'd be practically the first thing I would say to them. I think there's other things you could you obviously walk through, but that's yep. a big one. We could go on for a long time. There's a lot there. The third part of that question was this: Is there a situation? where it is permissible to remarry after a divorce. Yeah, I said on Sunday that wherever God... Well, let me back up a second and say that all these uh, exception clauses that we talked about, right? We talked about adultery, we talked about death, and we talked about an unbeliever leaving. Um, let, let's, let's put aside the legalities for a minute and, and start, talking, start using covenant language. That When does God view... This marriage is no longer it, the covenant has been broken. I think that's the issue, right? Um, and those are the those are the times he says the covenant is broken. The covenant has been broken in marriage when a spouse dies, right? The covenant is no longer together. There's no longer two people. Um, when there's adultery, that covenant is broken. Um, when the unbeliever leaves, the covenant is broken. But any other exception, the covenant's still together. Um, and so, uh, so that's what we're always trying to evaluate. When do, when does God see this covenant no longer being? Valid. It's been broken at that point. So as we deal with the issue of, of remarriage, um, you know, we, we went through the Gospels on Sunday too, where Jesus would talk about who marries someone who has been divorced, and the idea of again, un, unethically or un, not before God, legally divorced, had our kids committed adultery, right? So, um, so the the point is, is that in First Corinthians seven, that the goal is always reconciliation. So he says there in First Corinthians seven. Um, that that they are to uh, remain unmarried or else be reconciled. First Corinthians seven eleven. Um, and he just says like you shouldn't divorce. That's the goal. We shouldn't be divorcing. But if it does happen, meaning I think if there are situations where there was adultery and there was an unbeliever leaving or there was you know um, seek to be reconciled is the first step always. And if there's refusal to that, I think they're when he goes on to talk about the unbeliever leaving and that they're quote no longer bound. Um, that, that that's the idea of, of uh, that's the same language used in, in Romans chapter seven to refer to a freedom to remarry at that point. Bottom line, if there is a biblical means or biblical legitimacy to divorce, then there is a biblical legitimacy to remarriage in that same situation. 
Yeah, I, I think we want to be careful. I think one of the common causes of divorce in our culture today is the irreconcilable differences. Um, that's when we kind of get into the categories where remarriage is is not okay. Well, we said on Sunday too. I said you know there's let's talk about we talk about the legal stuff. We, we won't hear for a minute. But what's the big reason why God is so serious about marriage and so serious about divorce is because because we have a gospel for St. Corinthians 5 talks about the gospel of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. God has reconciled us to himself and reconciled us to each other. And two Christians can't reconcile with one another and they have to divorce yeah. over irreconcilable differences type thing. What kind of gospel are we preaching? Right. You know, I mean, we're hypocrites at that point. Like we're, we're talking about reconciliation. God will reconcile you to, to him and to each other and yet we can't live that out. So, so I think that's why it's so serious in our culture is that... Um, you know, especially when it comes to issues like, you know, no-fault divorce type stuff. Right. It's not, it's not biblical. Especially when you look at, like, an Ephesians 5 picture of marriage where it's painting this, you know, one of the purposes of marriage is to reflect the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel to the world around us. If you come out and just be like, oh, this is irreconcilable differences, that's not a, an example of, of the gospel at all. Mm-hmm. Next question we had, uh, hopefully a little bit simpler on the answer here. Pastor Chris, will the bond of marriage extend to heaven? So in Matthew 22, um, Jesus says in the resurrection, verse 30, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So I, I, I think the point of that being, um, I think the question may be asking is not, not will I get married in heaven, probably the question is asking, will I still be married to my spouse? Uh, especially if someone can imagine someone's a widow, right, or a widower, they've lost their spouse. Like, will we, I think the first thing to recognize is that, hey, look, in, in, um, in the same passage, he goes on to say, um, in verse 32 there, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I'm not the God of the, de- the dead, but of the living. Point being, Jesus is saying, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we get to eternity, we actually have, um, we have recognizable names, right? In this passage, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they still exist. They're not new people. They're not, um, you know, have some new look to them that you would recognize them. Their families will still recognize them. So I think the idea of rec- recognizing one another will still be there. Will I recognize my spouse? Yes. Uh, will I remember my spouse? Yes. I don't think there's a sense of amnesia there. I don't remember who they are anymore, or they look completely different. Um, so I think in that sense, there will still be relationships. Uh, there'll still be relationships that we had before that we'll maintain. will be new ones that we develop. But in terms of actually marriage, I think that the point Jesus is making is that there's no, there's no um, reason necessarily for marriage at that point in eternity. Um, so we talked about on Sunday, reason it is is because marriage is marriage and like sex and marriage is not ultimate Jesus is um, and so those things are things that do pass away in that sense um, so I would say yes recognizable yes still relationship but I don't think marriage is still happening uh, based on that passage yep, that's helpful uh, and then the last question here uh, really shifts gears gets a little bit more practical on a parenting side of things as we we talk through air, um, issues of marriage, uh, particularly of sex, um, and thinking about that from a parenting standpoint. How and when should we talk with our kids about sex? We, so our kids were in public school in Los Angeles. So 
we um, we deemed to, to approach that subject early on, um, and so we way before they even way before they hit puberty, um, because the fact of the matter is is that they were going to hear about it before, probably going to hear about sex or sexuality before they're even interested in sex or sexuality, um, and that's just the nature of the culture we're in. It's still the case today with technology. Uh, if your kid has a, a cell phone on them, they have access to a computer. Um, there is a good Unfortunately, a good probability they will be exposed to sexuality prior to them being interested in sexuality. They can be watching a YouTube video on a video game and then get an advertisement or something, or, or another video pops up on the side. I mean, it's just going to be there. So we need to be proactive as parents, not, not reactive. Uh, you want to be, we always took it as that we want to be the ones who uh, educate our kids on those subjects before the world educates them. Um, and it's, it's not just a one-time conversation either. Like it's like that solved it. All right, we had this one biological. The talk. The talk happens. Yes. Here's how the biology works. Here's how babies are made. Done. Okay, I did my job. Right. It's an ongoing conversation um, about that. It's an ongoing conversation. To open. You want to open the door so that when they do face temptation or when their bodies begin to change and they start going like girls are no longer ooh, but girls are like wow. Right. It starts changing. They're like, oh, I see them differently now. Um, when they start feeling, though, you know, that body starts changing, you want to have already had that conversation yeah. with them to be going, this is what we talked about. Yep, this is, this is what we told you to expect. I told you what happened. Like, it does. And um, how do we now navigate that world now that we are personally in it, meaning our bodies have started to change? Um, how do we now navigate that world? How do we protect ourselves? Um, and that kind of thing. So just having those open conversations. Um, the more you can set that early, the better that becomes when they become teenagers. So we can have a conversation in our house about sexuality and sex, and it's like, it, it's it's a common conversation, or it's a common subject can be brought up, and it's not taboo to talk about. And you still, I mean, you have teenagers still like, uh, do we really have to talk about that? I mean, no, that's still a normal response. But even asking, you know, my youngest one, like, hey, do you know what, you go back and ask him the other day, do you know what sex is? No, I don't think so. Okay, we've had, let's have this conversation again. <laughs> it's like it's just not there yet. You know, he's twelve; so it's not quite there yet. But um, but nonetheless, we're still having those conversations to bring that up. Um, keep that open door is really important for them because again, if your parents, you want your kids to come talk to you. Yeah. Because otherwise, they're going to go talk to their friends about it. It's probably going to get the best advice. What you know, go back to I've got the king in the Old Testament there who who got all of his peers as his uh, advisory as opposed to the older, wiser generation, right? And how that really wouldn't go well. Same idea, kids are gonna go and speak to their unwise friends about this issue, and it's not gonna be good counsel. Uh, it's, you know, dumb and dumber here, so it's not, not a good idea. So I would um, I'd advocate for leaving an open relationship with the parents, um, having that conversation. You wanna be the ones to help influence that. And that's where that proactive nature is really important, where you've kind of already begun the conversation before they're curious about it. So that way, when they are curious about it, they know, oh, I can go ask mom or dad this question. They'll answer me. Because if you haven't done that, the kid is going to be curious. They're going to have questions. You'd much rather them feel more comfortable going to you to ask that rather than the friends or even you know typing in the question into Google search because who knows what they're going to find there. Um, and, and I think one of the things that kind of helps foster that is don't be awkward about it. Like don't make it awkward. Just 
be real about it. Be honest about it. And your kids are going to pick up on that and feel, feel comfortable coming to you. Not just like, oh, I know I can, but I want to. And I feel comfortable going and talking to mom and dad. Yeah, it, should, it just should be a, a, an open door to that kind of conversation. It, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be something that's taboo to talk about. Because, again, they're going to learn one way or another. And hopefully you would want to come in from you as a parent. Yeah, so, so one last follow-up that came to mind as you're talking. What, what would you say to the parent who says, hey, my, my son daughter is 17 and I've really dropped the ball here? We haven't had the conversation. I don't know where they're at, what they're looking at, what they're doing, etc. I don't want to just punt on it, but I feel pretty much underwater like I'm drowning. How, how do you respond in that spot? What, what's the next, the first step for, for somebody in that situation to take? I would say the, the, the best conversations I've had with my kids, the most receptive they've been to anything we talk about, is when, is when we, we confess to them that we messed up. <laughs> They seem to be pretty open to that conversation. <laughs> They're like, oh, nice. <laughs> they messed up. Um, and so I think on this one, that's the first conversation. Hey, look, mom, dad, you know, we, we, we should have had this conversation with you a long time ago. I know you probably know a lot about this. It's not like we're having, you know, birds and the bees, and you're like, I know this is embarrassing for you because we should have had this a long time ago, but I just want you to know, like, we're sorry we didn't have that conversation. We should have. You know, forgive us as parents for not being yeah. engaged in this subject. It's a hard, this is a hard thing to navigate as a young person in today's mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. And we should have been there for you, and we, we weren't. Um, this is what you know. We, you know, our door's open, we would love to talk about this. I, I, my personal response would not be like, okay, let's sit them down, and let's talk <laughs> about how sex works. They're 17 at this point. Um, I mean, you can, I, I would take more of the question-asking approach. What do you, when I say sex, what do, what do, you, what do you understand that to mean? How is sex supposed to work? Like, why did God give us that? Like, I would do more of the inquisitive mm-hmm. question asking as opposed to now sit down, let me instruct you on how sex works now that you're 17 years of age, right? So, um, I would just, I'd go that route. Yep, yeah, that's helpful. Uh, we do hope this conversation has been helpful for all of our listeners. You can always reach out to one of the pastors if you have any further questions. You have been listening to You Asked.